people you love, play five songs they love and tell you why. I first heard Kate Crawford's work in the late 90s. She and Nicole Skelties made music as Biff Tech, and it was playful electro that was always future-focused. Machines can do the work. So the people have turned the tank. So it's not that wild to know that Kate went on to explore this world of machine learning and artificial intelligence. What's remarkable is that today she's one of the world's leading voices on the subject. When you read Kate's work or see her art pieces at the Museum of Modern Art in New York or the V&A in London, you're less likely to learn what is AI and more what is AI doing to us. See, Kate is interested in the supply chain that gets us there, the dirt, the minerals, the people and the very human data that builds that elusive cloud and how a few companies are controlling the power of billions. Sound interesting? That's why I asked her to take five. Kate Crawford recently published an atlas of AI, tracing back where it comes from and what it's doing. So riffing off that, I asked her to share her atlas of sound and walk us through the sonic cartographers that had shaped her life. Before we got into her choices, I wanted to trek back to those Biftech days and that song, Machines Work, released in 2000 on an album titled 2020. It couldn't be more prescient. The sample that we use in that track comes from this film that was made right back in the in 1967 for IBM which had this fantastic voiceover and soundtrack produced by Raymond Scott and I've always been so fascinated by that film this idea that machines were going to save us from all of this paperwork and was going to transform us into a leisure society in the past there always seemed to be enough time and people to do the paperwork there always seemed to be enough time to do the paperwork There always seemed to be enough people to do the paperwork. There always seemed to be enough time and people to do the paperwork. But today, there isn't. And those sorts of early promises about computation have always been fascinating to me, not just in terms of how they're shaped, but also how these imaginaries create new worlds and where they fail us. So certainly when I started to see the emergence of machine learning, which is, I guess, what you call the most recent kind of megafauna of AI. And it was clear to me that it was something that I wanted to research and understand a lot more about. But in my world, I would look around and see that all of the AI institutes around the world were technical institutes. Mm. They could just teach you how to code, how to do engineering, um, how to create algorithms. But there was nothing looking at the profound social, political, and ecological impacts of these systems of planetary computation. So it was pretty clear to me that that was going to be my big research area. um, And that's what I've been working on for the last 20 years. Yeah. And you really see that when I'm reading your book, The Atlas of AI, it is nothing to do with what is AI. It's nothing to do with the cloud. It kind of is, but it isn't. It's about very real Uh, issues in the world. It's about mining and labour and power structures. It's an amazing read. Um, You were a child of the 90s. You're like me. You grew up in the 90s and you saw the internet come to life in, in front of our eyes. We went from a period where it wasn't part of our world and then all of a sudden it was. It was Ask Jeeves. It was Netscape Navigator. It was all of those things. And of course, when you were making music with Biff Tech, computer life was very much part of our normal every day. 
Um, but can you remember that switch in the kind of early to mid-90s when internet use became a regular everyday thing for people beyond the computer labs of the world? I remember it vividly, Zan. I, I mean, it, honestly, it was mind-blowing to me the first time I got a login that would allow me to do FTP, like to remote log into various computer clusters around the world. I just thought this was the most exciting thing. And of course, this was pre-web. This is like when you had things like MUDs and MOOs, which, you know, for people who fortunately probably don't remember that, was text-based kind of worlds of communication where you'd be talking to people just using these text interfaces. And I just thought this was the most extraordinary experience of future communication. And it was a time of such optimism and excitement and potential in terms of this new and I think in some ways very non-corporate world. It sort of lived outside of corporate logics and, you know, outside of traditional institutional logics as well. It was it was all about imagination and play and exploration. Um, and I found that just incredibly heady at the time. And, and, and if I look at it now, it just to, to see how many things we lost, I think, by this sort of narrowing and this sort of corporate capture of so many of those internet spaces. Um, you know, we saw the emergence of things like MySpace and Facebook and, and more and more, he sort of walked into these kinds of walled gardens of the internet. Um, and we're starting to see now that they have left a really toxic political legacy. Mm. Certainly, you know, if we think about the way that Facebook has had such profound impacts on everything from, you know, genocide uh, in parts of the world through to manipulating major political elections. Um, it, these are platforms that I think in many ways have created such profound social problems and, and partly because People created them. We're thinking about just that optimism and that idea of move fast and break things and not about the the much deeper social implications of what they were doing. We're going to explore some of this. Already my head is spinning. It's full of ideas. I have a lot of questions, but we also have songs to play because Kate Crawford is here to take five. Uh, and the theme that I've given you today, Kate, is your atlas of sound. Playing off that idea. It. I'm glad you like it. I love it. I'm stoked whenever I uh, hand out a theme and, and the guest enjoys it. It is obviously playing off the idea of your atlas of AI, but also because you as a, as a creator, as an academic and as a musician, have always looked to the future. You've always been exploring new technologies and everything that you do and that you're interested in and kind of charted that territory that is often unknown. So today I kind of want to get into your brain, your musical heart, uh, and explore this atlas of sound and the sonic cartographers that have led the way for you. I'm unsurprised but also very happy that Kraftwerk are your first choice. An album that turns 40 this year, you've chosen Computer Love. Why did you choose mm. Kraftwerk? Well, look, I have to say from the beginning, Zan, that your show is so wonderful to listen to, but it is also the hardest ask when you're actually a guest because for me, <laughs> choosing only five is like choosing between your children. It's it's almost impossible. But of course, no list from me would be complete without Kraftwerk. The first time I ever heard Kraftwerk, I was very little. Apparently, I was around sort of five years old. Um, all I remember is hearing music that I thought was made by aliens. And my mother said, that I just would not stop dancing to this music. And that became my kind of, you know, alien soundtrack. And, and in every way, I think, you know, craft work 
gave me a sense that music could be something very different to sort of the traditional kind of rock sound of, you know, guitars and bass and drums, that it could be infinite, that there was a universe of sounds that you could create yourself and you could even, you know, create your own instruments, which is something that Kraftwerk were, you know, really ahead of their time in doing. And looking in that exchange that Kraftwerk created between what was happening with, you know, their work using analog instrumentation and then the inspiration that they gave to Detroit and the sort of the creation of particular forms and strands of techno that have also been really influential on me. Um, that brilliant sort of, you know, Berlin to Detroit and back thing that, that we've, we've seen sort of ricocheting from Kraftwerk into one Atkins. And then into Basic Channel, which was another big influence on me. Oh, blood clot. Come again. Come again, old boy. We don't want to have no off. That's a harmony. Anyway, we stop to do it, Make me hate. You can really trace everything back to to craft work, um, and and Biff Tech, you know, owes an enormous debt um, to them. But but also, I think for me, the way that I think about uh, music itself um, as 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 a place where you can explore different ideas about the social and the world, which is certainly this this track, Computer Love. If you think about, you know. When this was written, um, they were talking about, you know, computer dating and things that that right now are just part of everyday life. Mm. But back then were, was the stuff of fantasy. So they, they had this sort of extraordinary predictive power as well. I call this The thing that I also sort of noticed with both, you know, Kraftwerk and, and your work in Biftech is that both of you make this music that is very you know, loving of technology. It's very playful, but also you're not afraid to call to account or call bullshit on some of the things that maybe don't sit so well with you. And there's this sense of, you know, that, that gap between expectation and, and reality, this sort of hope, particularly when you think about this song in particular, mm. being made 40 years ago, there's that anticipation of a promise of what computers can be. Uh, but then also this understanding that it can be frustrating and, and exploitative um, or maybe just boring and hasn't lived mm. up to, to what we believe. Has, has your relationship to, to this music, to the music of Kraftwerk, changed over the years as well uh, in that parallel line that technology has expanded um, and changed too? Mm, mm. I mean, I love this question because, of course, you know, when I hear computer love now, you can also hear that very dark thread, um, this idea of loneliness and isolation and atomization, certainly things that that so many of us have experienced during the pandemic, you know, what it is to be separate from each other and only contacting each other through screens. Um, you know, that that sort of utopian dystopian flip in craftwork, I still really deeply appreciate. I think that they captured that beautifully, you know, 40 years ago. So certainly in terms of, you know, my own research into technology and, and, and seeing what has changed over that same period, you know, it has been this turn into a sort of dystopia in terms of these, these large scale, you know, AI systems that have been having such profound impacts on our lives. So, in, you know, Craftwork, I think even there, you know, capture that. It is playful, but it is, you know, at the same time has a deep sensitivity to what could go wrong.
This next song is Laurie Anderson, Language is a Virus. Laurie Anderson, what an amazing artist. I know you're a massive fan. You probably could have picked any number of Laurie Anderson songs. Why this one? You know, it's hard because she's got such a fantastic back catalogue. And, you know, it, it's it's funny. We have to remember that she was such an avant-garde experimental artist. Um, and it was a surprise to her when Oh Superman became like number two in the UK charts, if I remember back when that was released. That and is wild suddenly... still to this day. That just blows my mind. <laughs> It's a really long track yeah. as well. Um, let's be clear, it's it's not the sort of three minutes, 30 pop hit, you know, which was, you know, part of my thinking and giving you like, how do I give you a, a track that you could actually play? Because many of her tracks are very long. You know, she is such an inspiration to me because she's someone who has refused to stick with one label. You know, she's worked in performance art, in pop music, in multimedia. She has designed instruments. She has directed films. The thing that's been really interesting too is during the last year, uh, during the pandemic, she's done this extraordinary series of lectures for Harvard called the Norton Lectures, um, where she's been exploring her work and ideas and philosophy. But the thing that's so amazing about it is yet again, she's creating a new medium and she's using Zoom in a way that I just didn't think it was possible. You know, this this medium that we've all become so sick of, it's like, <laughs> oh, complete Zoom fatigue. And then you have Laurie Anderson turning it into this fantastic storytelling medium where I'm just completely transfixed. So how has she done it? Like I saw you tweeting about this the other day. You just, yeah. I'm like, how has she turned Zoom into an artistic medium? That seems impossible to me. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and she's done it using really kind of old tools and technology that we've had since the 80s, like sort of screen wipes and, and, and green screens and back projection. But she's essentially kind of moving in and out of the screen and using films and using still images and putting herself inside the images and then disappearing um, and then using music as a way of, of accentuating storytelling. Um, it, it really is just really beautiful use of archival material, of music, and of, uh, of using her own voice as an instrument for Zoom. Um, if, if you haven't seen them yet, I strongly recommend checking them out. Um, just look up the Norton Lectures and, and hopefully you too will be re-inspired by what is possible on Zoom. So good. You said I had to write that letter to your mother and I had to tell the judge that it was you. And I had to sell the car and go to Florida because that's just my way of saying that I love you. Had to call you at the crack of dawn and list the times that I've been wrong. That's just my way of saying that I'm sorry. It's a job. Sorry. It's a virus. That song in particular, too, that that line, language is a virus, is lifted from William S. Burroughs. Do you know much about the story behind that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I, I mean, I chose this one, of course, because, you know, we are living through COVID um, and, and in so many ways, you know, listening to her play with this idea in her lectures, she, she flips it from language is a virus to virus is a language. 
and you know how viruses actually create forms of culture and we're, we're really living through that right now we're seeing mm. our own cultures adapt and change and of course I've, I've spent most of that time in New York and seeing how New York itself shifted and certainly you know where I live in in downtown Manhattan just completely emptied out it was like living in a ghost town um, and and finding new ways to communicate with a few people left you know while wearing masks you know trying to kind of navigate supermarkets and, and gesture to each other and find you know social community in these new ways and interestingly I mean I used to sort of see Laurie Anderson quite frequently in my neighborhood she has a studio in East Village and I'd see her kind of riding past on her bicycle very regularly. Um, and, and you sort of forget how how much you need those moments of like neighborly connection and, and how much, you know, COVID really sort of wiped that out and created this, this very kind of hostile space that, that was New York. And it's been really lovely to see that slowly coming back online, you know, starting to see with vaccines, more people kind of connecting. But those ideas around how viruses become kind of cultural interventions as much as epidemiological ones is something that I think, you know, this track really reminds me of. Have you ever met Laurie Anderson? I'm just imagining you seeing her ride past you one day and your mind being blown. <laughs> or is she just like you see her down the shops all the time? <laughs> we've we've never actually met and talked. And it's funny because we share, we have friends in common, um, but we've never actually met. And, and, and in some ways I almost prefer that because I think it would be too much like meeting one of my absolute heroes. Yeah. You sort of want to keep some things as a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> she's amazing. Um, as you were <laughs> listing some of the things she's done, I was reminded too of that incredible concert that she put on um, when her and the late Lou Reed came out to Australia um, and did a handful of shows. I think it was for Vivid and she put on a concert for dogs that only dogs could hear because of the high pitch frequencies. <laughs> like that is some next level genius right there. I love that. Right. I mean, and she wrote this absolutely beautiful essay for Rolling Stone on the passing of Lou Reed and just about their life together and, and her process of grieving him. And it, it is one of those essays that really reminds you of the beauty of, you know, having a creative partner in life and, and sharing that life together. It, it is one of the most beautiful things to read about, you know, what it is to be there with somebody as they're dying as well. So yeah, strongly recommend. I feel like I'm already just going to be putting a whole bunch of things in the podcast show notes today when we put up the take five. <laughs> like now this is some follow-up reading. Um, I will say this, your, um, your reference section at the back of your book goes for almost a third of the size of the book. So this is a woman who knows how to look up some great content content and reference it well yes it is it is it is the uh the the academics uh disease really (laughs) but but also I mean it's funny for me because I, I think a lot about you know creating an atlas is, you know, creating a compendium and a, a series of ways of seeing, if you will, trying to see things at different scales. And if you want to be seeing artificial intelligence, you have to see it historically, you have to look at how it's changed, you have to see it temporarily, you have to see it geographically um, around the world. And that means, you know, really giving credit to so many thinkers who've come before me, but who've also really inspired the way I see. So, you know, that's that's very much a choice, you know, maps at their best are collective documents. This Atlas of AI was just published by Yale University Press. One of the many great things that I love about this book is one line in it where you talk about that idea of an atlas offering us the possibility of rereading the world and linking linking those disparate pieces um, differently. And 
again, when we talk about AI a lot, like you say, you're often talking about it from a tech point of view. You're not really talking about it from a social implications point of view or indeed a really tangible dirt in the hands and under the nails point of view. Uh, is AI something tangible or is it abstract in the cloud mm. like we often think? Well, that's the way that AI is presented. It's presented as being ethereal and immaterial and in the cloud. And, and if you do a Google search on AI and just look at images, you know, you get all of these images of like blue tunnels of numbers and men in suits standing in front of control panels and lots of white robots. You know, it, it doesn't look like anything earthly at all. And I think this has led us astray to the, to the fact that we've sort of forgotten the ways in which you know, AI is in fact neither artificial nor intelligent. You know, it's it's a profoundly material technology. It's made by extracting large amounts of natural resources and energy, um, exploiting labor throughout the supply chain, and of course, harvesting huge amounts of data from all of us. So in many ways, you know, AI is the extractive industry of the 21st century. Um, and it is very much a sort of a material technology, but we, we're never shown that. Um, so, so really part of the project of this book was to discover how artificial intelligence is made in the broadest possible sense and to really trace those material paths to go to the locations go to the mines you know where all of those kinds of resources are being drawn out of the earth to go into amazon's factories to see what that's like and to, and to go into the labs you know where the training sets of data are being constructed to drive ai so for me it really was about bringing ai back to earth it really is an incredible look at the supply chain of ai which i always think about as this intangible thing but no longer after reading this book I mean, when you're sort of looking um, at, at all of these different aspects that build AI, was there anything that's shocked you more more than anything else in, in your mm. research? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's a tie really between some of the more sort of shocking labour practices. Um, so many of the things that we think artificial intelligence are actually people, you know, doing the work in the background to, to make machines appear intelligent. So it's like a, it's like a reversal of the machines can do the work. It's people doing the work for machines. Um, certainly spending time inside an Amazon fulfillment center and seeing just the physical toll and psychological toll uh, that those spaces of work have and, and, and the way in which I think they presage working life for so many of us, increased surveillance, increased algorithmic management, that sense that we're all going to be subject to new forms of, you know, time-based control. That is something that really, you know, really shocked me to see how, um, how harsh those environments are. And then I think the environmental piece, you know, really looking at the fact that, you know, minerals like lithium, lithium crystal is something that's used in all, you know, reusable batteries. And in the book, I do a road trip out to, you know, the last lithium mine in the United States. And, and this is used in everything from iPhones to, you know, Tesla batteries. But at the current rate uh, that we're extracting lithium, the reserves that we know of could be used up as soon as 2040. I mean, thinking about the sorts of hard limitations on a planet that's already under strain, that we're creating these you know, AI supercomputers that just use so much energy and so many natural resources at a time when we just can't spare it. You know, that, that's something that, that really opened my eyes uh, when I was writing this book. And by a, a counterpoint as well, often going into, you know, materials like iPhones and batteries that only have a short shelf life. So digging up these 
things that have taken eons to form and then it will last for what's the average age of an iPhone? 4.7 years? 4.7 years. Yeah, that's that's according to the sort of consumer reports agencies. And, you know, as you say, from the perspective of deep time, that's billions of years of, of producing things that will be thrown away in, in such a brief second of technological time. And, you know, and they get, you know, thrown away in giant e-waste tips in places like Ghana and Pakistan, which then sort of leach into waterways and into the earth. So, you know, and when you look at the sort of end of life of so much computational hardware, it is shocking. I mean, you know, another sort of terrifying stat I saw just this week is that 70% of toxic landfill is now e-waste. You know, that's, I mean, you think about all the other things we throw away, you know, cars and, and you know, the stuff of life, you know, the e-waste is now has this this really terrifying legacy. So, yeah, the more you look into the, the material legacies of AI, um, the more it sort of has changed, certainly my relationship to these technologies. We are the Corporation. Let's get back into the music. You've chosen next one of my favourite records of all time. Um, Such a gorgeous meditative moment and a transformative moment for Alice Coltrane. How does this act as a sonic cartographer for you, Journey in Satchitananda? Where to begin with this beautiful record? I mean, it's absolutely transformative uh, in terms of what it's done to the history of music. It's been, it's influenced so many musicians over so many years. The story behind it is so moving as well. I mean, she was still grieving the loss of John Coltrane, who died three years before she produced this record. It was a sort of a devastating loss of a, of a powerful creative partnership for her. And this record really was a sort of a ray of hope. It, it, was, a, it was a moment of thinking about a different way of living. And she sort of described it as Uh, a vision of universal healing and this idea of floating in an ocean of love which could carry sort of all of these sort of horrors and and vicissitudes of life into a different domain and and the idea of Satchitananda means knowledge, existence and bliss. For me, sort of this became, you know, the the soundtrack of writing the book Um, and particularly, you know, towards towards the end um, when I was just finishing the book, which was, you know, at the start of of 2020 and an an extremely stressful and difficult year, not just in terms of what was happening with public health, but in terms of what was happening with the election um, and just the high levels of horror and misery in the United States. So so this album was almost like uh, a retreat for me. It was a place that I could sort of be somewhere more timeless while I was doing the work of writing. Um, and, you know, it is just so beautiful uh, that it has been, it has been really, yeah, really transformative for me as well. How did you listen to this record? 
Are you a streamer? Are you a vinyl listener? I'm so curious about how you listen to music. San, I'm going to give you one guess because I think you're going to know the answer. <laughs> vinyl record all the way, right? You got it. You got it, girl. <laughs> vinyl all the way. And you know what? This is a little a little tip that I'll give you um, and anybody who's sort of writing now, whether it's a book or a PhD thesis, vinyl is great because it makes you get up and flip sides. <laughs> you know, it forces you to get out of the chair, which, you know, ergonomically is a really good thing to do. Um, I found that if I listen to things streaming, I could just sit there and just, you know, get into these sort of nonstop work tunnels for hours, which is not good for you kids. So choose vinyl. <laughs> This is a great antithesis as well to the whole Apple Watch. You don't need a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch to prod you. You just need a vinyl record. This is the ultimate shaker-upper of getting up on your feet. <laughs> That's it. It's absolutely <laughs> the way of the future. This track is from The Caretaker. It's called All You're Gonna Wanna Do Is Get Back There. And it comes off the 2011 album, An Empty Bliss Beyond This World. of music is amazing. It feels like I'm underwater in a dream or a film. Who or what is the caretaker? What is this? I am so excited to share this with you, Zan. This is one of my all-time favourite records. Uh, it comes from an ambient uh, musician by the name of Leyland Kirby. Um, this record was produced when he walked into a little record shop in Brooklyn, uh, I think around 2010, and he found these old pre-war, pre-World War II, in fact, shellac ballroom jazz records. And he used them as this source material to create this dreamy record. And what's interesting is that his, um, he'd just been reading the studies about the way in which music is used to, um, as, as sort of a modality of treatment for people with Alzheimer's disease, mm. um, to sort of to listen to the music of their youth. And so in, very, in, in many ways, this, this album is about following the mind of a person who's, who's trying to remember small parts of their youth using these kinds of broken sounds. Um, and it's, for me, it's an incredibly evocative record. And in using it, it's it's become multiple things for me. I, I um, was working on a, an art collaboration with the artist Trevor Paglin, and we were asked to do 
really essentially a sort of a, a, a two-day installation event at Maxime's, the restaurant in Paris. And we were able to, um, as part of this event, have an art installation over sort of three floors and to um, create a sound environment, inviting in our favourite DJs and musicians, and also to have a series of academic talks and lectures about specifically the politics of facial recognition, hence the name of the show, Making Faces. So we looked at everything like the history of phrenology, we looked at, you know, the, the, the sorts of technologies that have been used to try and read people's characters from looking at their faces and why they're so problematic and, and you know, have been so deeply connected with, uh, with race science and white supremacy um, and that trajectory now into uh, facial recognition and emotional recognition that AI systems uh, perform. And so we, we had to have like a touchstone record that was going to be what is the vibe of this, of this two-day event. And we shared it with, you know, all of the performers and said this, this connection to to history and particularly in a, a space like Maxime's, which is you know so rich historically and has this sort of profound connection to French culture, um, but has this sort of you know rich red velvet drapes and beautiful stages and then dining rooms and it it feels like an old extraordinary ballroom space. So this was the the central record. This was the record that we sort of centered this um, this event around. sounds as though regardless of the direction your life has taken and obviously this realm has been something you've been interested in even when we knew you with Bithtech you can you can hear it in everything that you do but on the flip side music is still such a huge part of every part of your academic life and your artistic life today it's, it sounds as though that's that's never gone away you've always found ways to to include it in what you do. Mm, I mean, absolutely. I mean, both in the most, you know, literal sense that, you know, I continued to uh, write and release music. The latest record was with a band called Metric Systems called People in the Dark. And we released that, you know, towards the end of the Trump administration, hence the title. Um, but again, all using old analog synthesizers, which have been sort of my passion for, you know, since I was a kid. But even in my, you know, even in my academic work, I'm really interested in how we collaborate outside of the academy to really bring these ideas around the profound impacts of artificial intelligence and large-scale technologies into a public debate, really. And, and in so many ways, artists are, are fantastic at doing that. So, you know, I've had multiple collaborations with artists over the years, um, including Vladan Jola, who I uh, made this sort of giant map called the anatomy of an AI system, where we look at a single Amazon echo system and trace all of the sort of components that are in it right back to the mines where they came from and how they were smelted and how they were sort of shipped in container ships and then how the data pipelines work and then, you know, where they get disposed. You know, those sorts of collaborations are just so much better when you can visualize them, when you can sort of put them in museum contexts and um, and very different people will engage with those ideas. Um, so, yeah, it, it certainly, you know, the collaborations that I've had with people like Vladan and Trevor, I think, have meant that these ideas travel in new ways. Well, they've literally travelled and to a museum. In fact, two of the biggest museums in the world have that anatomy 
of an AI in them, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and the V&I Museum in London. Um, so that's, you know, another notch to Kate Crawford's belt. <laughs> you also won one of the uh, biggest design awards of the year in 2019 when you um, created that as well. What a joy it is to just talk to you about all of this. Honestly, Kate, I could just chat with you about artificial intelligence, art, how we process it, how I should not be using a smart speaker, all of it um, for a long, long time. But one thing that I sort of see through through knowing you over the years and also through the work that I've, I've read and heard from you, um, it feels like curiosity is a big part of, of your life, of of not knowing what you're what you're heading towards. Is that what drives you, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if I think about why I find being a researcher so attractive, it's that you can ask yourself questions that you don't know the answers to yet. And then you have to go and do the work to to trace how you might answer those questions. And, you know, that's something that interests me as much you know, in academia as it does in music as it does in you know culture so you know curiosity is is a, a core part of who i am to make reality of imagination nation, nation. and your final choice on your big map your big atlas is from the wonderful Serpent with Feet. He recently released a gorgeous new album called Deacon, but you've gone back to the very early sounds of Serpent with Feet. I think this is one of the first songs I heard from him. It's called Bless Your Heart. Where does he Mm. fit in your Atlas of Sound? So this is Josiah Wise, um, who is an experimental musician uh, who's also based in New York City. Uh, And I will never forget the first time I heard Soil, uh, the album that he released, I think back in 2018. And it just floored me. It was this transformed sounds so of kind of queer and hyper-romantic and pagan and erotic, this almost insanely warped and perverse gospel record. And it, you know, it was clear to me that this was somebody that, you know, that I wanted to work with and just to sort of hear his music in different spaces. So uh, when we were given this offer to do this, this installation in Paris, um, I played this record to Trevor Paglin, who I was collaborating with on the show and said, you know, I think this is someone that we need to invite to to come and play Um, and he had exactly the same reaction and so we had this extraordinary moment of having Serpent with Feet come and play at the sort of closing night of the Making Phases uh, exhibition in Paris and he was in this sort of stunning red room, just him and a keyboard um, and singing the song to a completely packed space and everyone is sort of squeezed up next to each other. And he had us sing this song, Bless Your Heart, as almost like a, a giant choral work. And I will never forget it, Zan. I had tears like streaming down my face. It was the most beautiful moment of communal singing um, in this in this kind of, moment of history and that was back in January 2020 and tragically is the last time I saw live music because just after that of course you know a month later the world had changed when I give these books away will my ink betray me My stories resist wings and grow feet and 
convince me that I'm boasting Or will my psalms seek the company of lonely breaths? Will they inspire sudden lovers to kiss with mouths they don't have yet? Boy, whoever reads about how much I adore you the beautiful Serpent with Feet. And what a memory to take you through a year without live music, huh? That's just magical. Oh, I could have spoken with Kate for days. And her work on AI alone, that is a whole other conversation. If you're curious to hear more, chase up that atlas of AI. It's brilliant. It will change the way you think about it all. Next time on The Take 5, we're hanging out with a living legend of Australian music. From the saints to laughing clowns to his solo work and everything in between, Ed Cooper has lived an extraordinary musical story and he's taking five with his decades next time. Take five! The Take Five with Dan Rowe. Every week, hear the people you love. Hi, I'm John Jett. Hey, this is Nana Cherry. And I'm taking five. Talk about the five songs they love. Hear stories of discovery. And I heard this thing coming out of the speakers. I was like, oh my God, what is that noise? Wow. And the songs that changed how they saw the world. It just affected me deeply. I never knew rap could be that powerful. Join Zan Rowe and Take 5. Life 101 with Kimber and Zan. Pull up a chair. (laughs) Subscribe now.